You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Caroline Hyde at Bloomberg's World Headquarters in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up, more job cuts at Twitter as Elon Musk continues cost-cutting at the social network. And we have more on tech layoffs as Palantir unveils reductions as well. And today's Bloomberg Big Take focuses on how the Ford F-150 Lightning is actually built with materials alleged to be damaging the Amazon and those who call it home. We'll bring you the details from that reporting. Plus, we'll talk all things social media as Snapchat dives into the world of AI and Meta. It unveils a new tool aimed at protecting children. All that and so much more coming up. First, foremost, we get to those markets. A bit of a reprieve after the sell-off the previous week. We're up six-tenths of a percent on the Nasdaq. All country world index, also on the higher side. Europe gets a bid. This largely feels that it's to do with borrowing costs at the moment. They trick down a little bit. If you're looking at U.S. Treasuries, we just saw some buying. So maybe a bit of reassessment as to whether we're buying the dip, whether it comes to equities or indeed bonds. Let's flick it on. Let's look at what's not being bought on the dip right now. Actually, crypto after what has been a pretty phenomenal for January, February, mm, a little bit less so. We're still, if you look at a two-day basis from the point that we're tracking at, it is up about 2%, but we're still below that 24,000 mark, even on a day that we saw US dollar weakness, Ed. Yeah, from the macro to the micro, when I look at individual names, there's a lot of energy in EV-related stocks in the market. Pardon the pun. Tesla up 5.5%. That performance from Tesla reinstates Elon Musk as the world's richest man, according to Bloomberg. We'll get to that later. Fisker up 30%. It's its debut year of production, Karen. They're saying that on an annual basis, they will see profit on an EBITDA basis uh, being positive in 23, which is staggering. Then Lifecycle up 4%. Have been up almost as much as 12%, but they've got a DOE loan... We're going to talk to the CEO about how they use those funds. Moving to the downside, Meta actually kind of bucking the trend of mega cap tech down half a percentage point. Then you mentioned Palantir actually down for a seventh straight session. That breaking news from our colleagues in the print newsroom about how they're going to cut staff less than 2% when it comes to Palantir, which is interesting. Um, but this was a company that kind of pledged not to make these kinds of cuts. Well, you can see on a seven-day basis, actually, it's a stock that suffered. And as you know, Caroline, it's not just Palantir, right? Twitter also 
seeing this fresh wave of job cuts. The layoffs hitting employees across the company, including engineering and product team sources, telling Bloomberg some employees learned the news via an email, others finding out because they couldn't log onto internal systems. Bloomberg's Kurt Wagner here in San Francisco joins us for more. Uh, not that surprised, really, are you? No, unfortunately not, right? I mean, we've seen a slow trickle now for a while, uh, but this one felt more significant, right? It did happen, unfortunately, on a Saturday night, right? So a lot of uh, employees are enjoying their weekend, and as you pointed out, some got emails saying, hey, you, you know, your job has been terminated. Others are simply trying to get into the system, can't, and they kind of uh, deduced from that. So not great, but to your point, not surprising when we know how much they're trying to cut costs over there. Cut any theme as to where they were being cut from or any key executives that went? Yeah, it was really heavy into the product org, actually. And, and uh, you know, I've been hearing from a lot of people that they're having a tough time figuring out who's left in product over there. We did see several founders um, of companies that Twitter had acquired over the years get laid off. Now, they had been, uh, the company had been trying not to lay those folks off. The, the thinking was that, you know, they might have bigger stock award grants, for example, having sold the company to Twitter. They didn't want to expedite that type of thing. But in this case, uh, you know, several of those founders were laid off. Uh, including Esther Crawford, right. who you know, was, sort of became uh, a little bit uh, famous, if you will, as uh, someone who was sleeping in the office early on in, in Twitter's uh, that, That's Twitter what I don't get. I was going to ask specifically about yeah. Esther Crawford. She was one of these people, as you and I reported at the time, that kind of aligned herself pretty quickly with Elon Musk, right. publicly tweeting about the things that Elon Musk was wanting staff to do. Um, she's gone. She's gone. What do we know about that? I mean, she was pro-Musk. Yeah, I mean, well, you know this uh, better than I even do, Ed. But like, you know, you can be committed to Elon Musk, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's reciprocated, right? And I think this is just yet another reminder to people who, uh, you know, work at, at companies that he runs that, like, you know, this is a job, right? And, and uh, she was running Twitter Blue, uh, which, as we know, is, is the subscription service that they're trying to build. And um, I don't think the adoption of that has been great. I, I certainly don't consider that anything to do with her. I'm, I'm not sure that people necessarily want to pay for Twitter, but I guess my point is, is like when you're high profile, when you're running an important product, um, you know, that does not save you necessarily when it comes to Elon Musk. There's some, been some interesting reporting uh, around stock compensation as well for those that remain at Twitter and how they're incentivized. Ultimately, what are we trying to make of the way in which this business is being run? Yeah, well, I mean, this is clearly an incentive to encourage the people who are still there to continue to show up and work hard, right? Imagine you're you're working at Twitter today. You, you've made it through now multiple rounds of job cuts. Uh, you're probably looking around and, and close to 75, 80% of the people you were working with six months ago are no longer there. Like if you're Elon Musk, you need to convince those people, hey, there's a there's a future here, right? Like you should stick around because this thing is going to get turned around. And, and a big part of that, of course, is what will your compensation look like up until now? There's been a lot of questions about what it would be like to, to own any part of a private Twitter. He's hoping to, to change that. We still don't know the details, but you know, presumably if you're going to stick around, you want to know that you have some skin in the game as well. Well put. Kurt Wagner, we thank you as always for jumping on these sorts of stories for us and probably busy on Saturday too. I'm talking about compensation, Ed, I'm just looking, what was it, the, the red headline that came across the terminal just after the market shut? Once again, Elon Musk himself doing pretty well from a compensation perspective. 
Yeah, he's once again the world's richest person, according to Bloomberg's Rich Index, R-I-C-H-GO on the Bloomberg, jumping back above uh, Bernard Arnault. Um, and it's all about Tesla gains, right? You look at the breakdown of his wealth. A big chunk of it, of course, is Tesla stock. And Tesla up another 5.5% today. Um, we've been waiting on this to happen for a few days. But that's why we keep talking about him, him and all his companies. Yeah, I mean, let's delve into his companies a little bit for a moment as well. Because, well, you're the man who covers all things space. SpaceX had what a little bit of a setback this morning yeah, well, setbacks, it's a really interesting one. This was for the Crew-6 mission, okay, to ferry astronauts, uh, three NASA, one Russian cosmonaut, to the International Space mm. Station. There was a technical issue, so they're now delayed to the early hours of March 2nd. But that's also meant, curiously, Caroline, they've had to delay other launches for Starlink. And it just speaks to how, I, I guess, effective SpaceX is at putting people and objects into orbit, that they're managing all of this once. But it was so rare for them not to go off as scheduled. Usually it's weather. Right, but this was yeah. a technical delay. Oh, we've all been talking about the weather an awful lot over here in New York and over there in San Francisco. But I tell you what also we've been talking about, haven't we, Ed, is FSB. That's the update to, what is it, what's in beta at the moment with Tesla is the way in which you're, the idea is you can drive these cars automatically. It's a software update and then they'll be able to, in some ways, drive themselves. But it looks as though there's been a hindrance right. to that particular part of the story as well. Right, and so they've stopped rolling it out pending a software update, essentially. Remember, the background to this was the NHTSA-enforced recall. Mm. Uh, it was a software update that was required because they found a, a crash risk associated with those using FSD beta. Uh, the fix is made remotely, right, over-the-air update. But yeah. we're micro-focused on how Tesla keeps its uh, customers safe. Precisely. 363,000 vehicles, as you say, had been recalled already. I mean, we keep focused on that. We keep our eye trained, in fact, at EVs more generally because there was a phenomenal story, part of our reporting that's known as the big take. Each day you do a deep dive into something that's really specific that you've got to get a hands around. And today it was a Bloomberg investigation that traced that actually the aluminium, as I would say, aluminium, if you're American, in the Ford F-150, if you can trace it back through the supply chain, it comes from a refinery in Brazil that's actually accused of sickening thousands of people. It's damaging the Amazon. We want to bring in one of the reporters behind this very story, Sheridan Prasso. Sheridan, just talk to us about the company involved here, because this isn't actually the, the smelter or the, the mining capacity isn't coming from Ford. They're sourcing it elsewhere. That's right. Um, the company's called Norsk Hydro or hydro, as some other people say. Um, it's based in Norway. They have a refinery in the Amazon in Brazil. And that refinery uh, has been operating for many years. And the people who live around it, about 11,000 people, have joined a class action lawsuit. And they say that uh, the, the company is polluting the environment, their drinking water is undrinkable, and that they actually uh, want to bring a case against uh, Norsk Hydro uh, in a court in the Netherlands to seek compensation for uh, the, the pollution that they allege is making them sick. Ford did, of course, come back, well, a spokesperson you'd spoken to within your reporting. Ford is committed to a supply chain that exceeds minimum regulatory compliance requirements, they say, and respects human rights, including the right to clean air and clean water. But ultimately, how focused are companies such as Ford to their supply chain at the moment, to ensuring that they're ethical? So it's quite complicated. Supply chains are very difficult to trace uh, in order to find out that this 
these products from the Amazon go into the Ford F-150 in the EV and in the 150 both. They, they make up the exterior panels, um, almost all the aluminum that you can see on the outside of the F-150. Uh, its origins are in Brazil. And the way that you uh, trace this is you look at the bauxite mine that's in the middle of the rainforest. It has expansion plans. It's already three times the size of Manhattan. It wants to expand another size of Manhattan to deforest that area, get the bauxite out of the middle of the Amazon, take it to this refinery that is alleged to be polluting, and then it's, it's smelted in Quebec, and then it goes to the parts makers in the United States, and then from there, it goes to Ford. And so you look at the entire aluminum supply chain, so of course going into almost all the aluminum that we do have in the United States, but the way to tell the story and the way to look at it is through Ford and to track the specific parts all the way back to their origins in the Amazon. So not uh, because supply chains are so difficult to trace and so non-transparent, I think it's difficult for the end user to necessarily know what the origins are in the Amazon. It difficult to trace, but you did do a fantastic job of the big take in doing exactly that. But in reverse, right, start with your F-150 Lightning, work backwards, and we get to bauxite, right? So explain to our audience how we work out how the contamination is happening. My understanding is that bauxite uh, is then processed to alumina, and alumina is, is basically the white powder from which alum, aluminum, aluminium, as I used to say, is derived. What have we learned about how that contamination is happening within the Amazon itself? That's right. So bauxite mining itself is kind of a dirty business. They use strip mines to claw up the earth, uh, a lot of the runoff from the bauxite. And at this particular mine, it's called MRN, in the middle of the Amazon in the rainforest. Uh, for many years, they were just kind of dumping large quantities of bauxite tailing waste uh, into a nearby lake and polluting the, the environment that people rely on there to live. Their fish, their water supply, their water for washing, their drinking water, everything was affected by this mining operation. Even years later, it's impossible to clean it up. People there told me when I went there to, to go and talk with them. Um, so that's one of the aspects of the contamination that you see at the very source. Uh, of course, MRN itself says they are operating within legal parameters and they take measures to uh, try to minimize the impact on the environment. That said, uh, bauxite mining itself is actually quite, um, you know, destructive for the environment to, to a large extent. And then the bauxite travels 800 miles down the Amazon River. I followed the trail of the bauxite, went right. all the way down the Amazon River to the end, to the refinery itself, making, uh, alum making alumina, the white powder that becomes aluminum, is itself a very difficult, uh, coal-burning, intensive process that that technology has been around for 100 years. It hasn't changed all of that much, and in fact, it, you add caustic soda and lime right. to this solution and you store the waste of that. They take measures to try to make sure it doesn't escape into the environment. The people who live around it say that it does. Right. Bloomberg, Sheridan, Presso. Caroline, that is the definition of in-the-field reporting, mm. if ever I've seen it. And the response is that Ford now have to go back and look at their supply chains, a story that we'll continue to track. Shares of lithium battery recycler Lifecycle spiked today after the company announced it's getting a $375 million loan from the Biden administration. And that is for the expansion of a New York recycling plant. Joining us now is Lifecycle CEO RJ Kochar. 
Interesting. This is uh, the second time Caroline and I have spoken to your industry in recent weeks about a DOE loan. Uh, my question is really how much of a stopgap this is, right? Because you take scrap and you recycle it, but there isn't that much scrap around. And so I'm wondering how much you actually needed this cash to keep operations going as this industry ramps up. Yeah, great to be on it. And look, I think that's a bit of a, a misnomer, if not actually a big misnomer. So Lifecycle, we're a commercial business today. Think of it as urban mining. We purely focus on lithium battery recycling. We today have four commercially operational sites that are full of lithium batteries of all types. So think of scrap from the making of batteries, but even energy storage systems, EV batteries. EV batteries, for example, from recalls, I think people don't realize that as they go on the road, there's a lot more batteries need to be recycled and, of course, consumer electronics. So we continue to grow. I think we've you know, more than doubled our feed intake over the last year. So I think it's a commonly said thing uh, about there being a lack of feed, but we have continued to see a very rapid growth through our customer base. If the scrap is not so limited, how high are the bids that you're having to put in to obtain it? I'm kind of interested, RJ, to get into the economics of the business right now rather than in the future when more scrap's available. Sure. So take a step back. So there's really two parts of recycling. It's often like grouped into one, but there's really pre-processing and post-processing. Pre-processing is where you take the scrap into the batteries, go to an intermediate product. Post-processing is to a finished chemical or, or good. So we do both. That's our spoken hub model, reverse logistics. You know, through the first step, I'd say, look, that part, you know, we have a lot of advantages there that helps to secure the feed. That's been a very important part of our journey. But the real margin at the end of the day is through the second step, through the making of the battery-grade lithium nickel cobalt. That's what we're going to be doing at our Rochester hub facility in, in Rochester, New York. That's what this conditional commitment is for, the loan, the $375 million loan. So, look, I say over our next one, two-year journey, that's a key inflection point for us mm. to eke out that lithium value, that nickel value, that cobalt value in the batteries. Just to remind us, of course, all of this, the focus, the financing coming from the U.S. government is to ensure that we have a more secure supply chain right here in the United States. How much will you be supplying? Yeah, so if you think about it in EV terms, we're over 200,000 EVs equivalent of materials that we'll be producing at the back end, if not more. We'll be producing another fact, which will help to understand, we'll be producing up to 8,500 tons of lithium carbon a year. That may not mean much to folks, no. but in the United States today, the production is 5,000 tons. So I don't think many people have clued in that we'll actually be the largest source of lithium production in the United States, albeit from recycling as opposed to mining. Mining, of course, is an important part of the equation, but it's inherently a long lead. So one of the key advantages we can deliver is a faster time to market. And to your perspective, the customer base, is it largely EVs? Is it storage? Who are we going to be really seeing new mm. supply to? Yeah, so predominantly EVs, for sure. Uh, you know, as Ed was opening in the beginning there, as you make batteries, it's not perfect. It turns level scrap. LG is one of the largest EV manufacturers, uh, battery manufacturers in the world. They're an investor and customer of Lifecycle, so that's a great, you know, steady state, growing, you know, base of us for feed. But interestingly, we've seen a lot of other segments grow. For example, energy storage, residential utility. So each of the segments we're in, all types of lithium batteries continue to have, you know, significant growth. We thank you, RJ, for coming on. All about securing this new loan, this focus on growth. RJ Kochar of Lifecycle. Thank you, Jim. Great to have some time. Meanwhile, coming up, we're going to turn to today's Talking Tech. We're going to look at Snapchat jumping into the world of, guess what? <gasps> An AI chatbot.
details to follow. And as we head to break, another story we're following, and it's actually a senior US cybersecurity leader that Ed's spoken to just very recently. Well, she's urging that Microsoft and Twitter do step up their protocols when it comes to user security. Jen Easterly, the director of cybersecurity and infrastructure security agency, says bad software, unsafe practices are fueling ransomware attacks that span essential services from energy to supply to food production to hospitals and even schools. She pointed to Apple, actually, as a bit of a role model for companies to look to. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Five things to watch from this year's Mobile World Congress. Number one, artificial intelligence. Think ChatGPT, that is on everyone's lips. Number two, the metaverse. Is it the future or is it just a fad? Number three, the challenge to Elon Musk's Starlink. The space industry is burgeoning. Will there be a response from Europe? Number four, it's far less about the mobile phones, frankly. It's much more about the automakers, healthcare, defence, lining along 5G and the opportunities there. Number five, China is here in force. Defiance, it seems, from the operators, some of which, like Huawei, are blacklisted. That was Bloomberg's Tom McKenzie at the Mobile World Congress in Barcelona. And it's time now for Talking Tech, a look at the tech stories making headlines in Silicon Valley and beyond. Let's kick things off with Nokia, the Finnish maker of 5G technology, rebranding with a new logo to try and get away from its mobile phone roots. Nearly a decade after they stopped producing the devices, the company is still dealing with perceptions that it does produce phones. The announcement and revamp comes alongside a set of new strategic pillars intended to enable faster growth as the world increasingly adopts 5G 
mobile technologies. And Xiaomi unveiling wireless augmented reality glasses, the concept device from the Chinese phone maker designed to let users gesture via its embedded camera to select and open apps, swipe through pages and also exit apps to return to the start page without using a smartphone. It's the company's latest attempt to build momentum in an arena that's yet to become mainstream. And finally, Snapchat entering the world of artificial intelligence, the social media company unveiling an AI-enabled chatbot, becoming the latest major tech company to roll out features powered by OpenAI's GPT technology. Snapchat's My AI bot will be pinned to the top of the app's chat tab, letting users engage directly with the AI as they would with friends on the popular photo sharing and messaging app, Caroline. I think you and I both saw this headline and thought, okay, the latest name, why Snap? Why are you doing this? <laughs> I mean, they've got AR prowess. Many would say yes. that perhaps, perhaps artificial intelligence is a clear area that they're going to be good at, but it's notable that you've got to pay, right? $3 Right. Like it's not month in terms of a of a subscription, but it really is trying to just be a little perk if you're a Snapchat Plus member at the moment. And what were they advocating that you use it for? Sort of writing love letters of, of to cheese obsessed friends. It felt like yes, cheddar. <laughs> cheddar fans can talk cheese with the AI. But you're right, they're charging for it. It's a value add. Our BI colleagues, Bloomberg Intelligence, pointing out also kind of makes their first party data offering more attractive to the advertisers as well. Ah, oh, well said. It's always about trying to close that loop and ensure that they become a little bit more addictive to the Money. user and maybe a little bit more addictive to the advertiser as well. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Caroline Hyde in New York. And I'm Ed Ludlow in San Francisco. Let's talk drones, Caro. Skydio raised $250 sorry, million dollars to expand its factory tenfold, a financing deal that gives Skydio a $2.2 billion valuation. CEO Adam Bree joins us to discuss. Adam, how difficult was it to raise those funds in this environment? Well, look, I think we're fortunate to be serving a customer base uh, that's just critical to how our civilization runs. You know, we're serving national defense customers. We serve public safety. A number of our customers use our drones for critical infrastructure inspection. Um, so it's not to say that we're totally detached from the, the mainline economy, but this is core stuff that, that helps our civilization function. And, and there's some degree of, of independence. And, you know, I think we're at a moment in time now where these devices, these drones that started off looking like consumer choice have really proven to be critical tools to help all these industries run and, and function. Um, and it's also become equally clear that we can't be relying on drones that are, are calling home to, to China to, to take instructions. So there's a lot of themes in play that I think are really important. And, and this is something that we take seriously as a company. And I think that's part of the reason why we were able to do the fundraising, even in the face of a, of a challenging macroeconomic environment. It's, it's also not just the sum of money. I was looking at the investors backing you. And you, you basically have a split of strategic investors in relevant defense industries and then sort of classic venture capital names. Which are more important for you? Does it matter where the money comes from in terms of opening doors to new markets? Well, it definitely matters where the money comes from. Uh, and we're fortunate to have a, a great uh, group of investors uh, going back over the life of the company now. You know, in, in this funding round, we're especially excited to be adding Axon as, as one of our strategic investors. So Axon is a great partner of ours. They're a leader in the public safety technology space. Um, you know, they made tasers, they make body cameras. 
and we're partnering them now to bring drones and, and real-time aerial situational awareness into their product portfolio. So that's an example of a, a technical partnership, a go-to-market partnership, where we're already doing things to help our, our joint customers be successful, and, and we were very excited to bring them on as an investor as part of this round. Um, we're also excited to have NVIDIA uh, reinvesting in the company. So yeah. NVIDIA has been a great partner of ours since the very beginning. Um, you know, We started working together in 2014 before the explosion of AI, computer vision, machine learning, uh, but their, their chips are at the core of our products and really help make our stuff possible. Going back to Axon as a strategic investor, some of them queried whether you, with the funding, start to expand the offering too. At the moment, of course, you offer the actual drones, the capability, but some are saying maybe you start to offer the client base the ways in which you then use the data that's gathered. Would you look down that direction? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So we're most focused on making it frictionless and automated to capture the data, get it up to the cloud, and then make it useful however we can for our customers. Um, and the way that, that people want to use the data varies quite a bit by industry. So in public safety, the integration with Axon and their evidence management system is great. You know, We're not going to build our own digital evidence management system and hooking in with a partner like Axon where they're aggregating uh, body camera data, data from other, other sensors in the public safety space with drone data makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. In other customer bases that we serve, for example, energy utilities, what they really care about is extracting insights. They're looking for damage, you know, rust, cracks, things like this in their infrastructure. Um, and it's kind of a different technology landscape and a different partner landscape to enable things like that. So we're most focused on the capture and getting the data to the cloud and then working with the right set of partners to make the data useful for our customers. And Adam, in large part, the way in which you've sort of discussed that you're almost able to move through this economic environment no matter what is because in large part in the same way we're just talking about batteries being made or recycled here in the US it's about making drones here in the US rather than depending on China where are you in terms of the technological divide between US China drone making yeah so it's the his, historical perspective on the drone industry is interesting. I mean, these things started off basically like radio control toys, and this is actually the, the world that I grew up in. I grew up flying radio controlled airplanes. I didn't start doing it because I thought it was going to be a career, but essentially what happened is the drone industry grew out of the RC helicopter industry, and that was a manufacturing base that, that came up in, in China, and so that's where drones started being built. And uh, Chinese companies still control a dominant share of the market, but I think we've reached a point in time where it's just not tenable uh, to be relying on these systems, especially for DOD customers, but even for public safety, for critical infrastructure operators. Um, and so that is certainly a, a major theme in play. But I think the other really important theme, and for us, I, you know, I think the one that's going to be more important over the long term, is the transition from manually flown drones to autonomous drones. So the, the sort of status quo state of play in the industry today is if you have an expert pilot who knows what they're doing uh, flying the drone, you can do some useful stuff. And we see examples of the, yes. that value being proven everywhere. Uh, but the future of these things is automation. The drone should fly itself. It should live in the background collecting data whenever it's needed. Um, and you shouldn't need to have an expert pilot there flying it. And that's really what we're all about as a company. We bet very big on AI, uh, computer vision when we started, and we're seeing those bets pay off and really come to life with our customers now. So one of the products uh, that we announced at the end of last year is the dock and remote operation system, where rather than needing to have an, a pilot on flight to fly the on site to fly the drone, it lives in a charging base station 
Uh, it can fly itself on demand. It can be commanded remotely over the internet. Uh, and this just totally changes the paradigm. So we see a future where every substation, every power plant, every police station, every construction site has a dock drone that's available uh, to respond to emergencies in real time or to just on a regular schedule collect the data. And I think that's the real opportunity in, in the industry. So the the national security implications of drones certainly matter. Yes. Uh, but the biggest thing that we're leaning into is the, the automated future. Well, Adam, uh, you, know, you know, the opportunity w was born, I think it's fair to say, out of the war in Ukraine. That put a lot of spotlight on the use of drone technology. How big a chunk of your business is military? And looking forward, you know, are you kind of more dependent on military contracts than, than some of your other customers in their end markets? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. It's a really important topic area for us. So again, the, the historical perspective here is kind of interesting. We started as basically a consumer-focused company, um, but at this point, DOD is a, a major part of our, our customer base. And I think that's thanks to some really forward-leaning folks within the U.S. military who realized that these civilian drone technology was essentially outpacing the traditional defense systems. You know, this the, the drone that you can buy as a consumer or uh, as, as a private company that costs a few thousand dollars in most cases has more advanced capabilities, more usable, more accessible than the traditional military system that might cost a few hundred thousand dollars. And tragically, Ukraine has really put an exclamation point on this. You know, civilian drones have become strategically super relevant, and they've also highlighted the the deadly implications in many cases of using drones that are calling home to China and aligned with with Chinese foreign policy. So we've been a part of this for years now, and we're seeing those trends really come to a head in Ukraine. Yeah. Well, well said. I mean, and we talk about the growth. We talk about, of course, the applications, and some of them more emotional than others, but we thank you so much, Adam Bree, for spending some time with us. Sky DO CEO on the latest Series E funding round. Thank you. Meanwhile, coming up, how to close the gender gap with the help of tech, Springback Collectives. Courtney Lankula is going to be joining us to tell us more live from the nicey floor. And as we head to break, watching shares of Pfizer, which is in early stage talks to acquire the cancer therapy developer Seijin for a deal that could exceed $40 billion. Pfizer down more than 2% in traditional trading. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop. Customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done.
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now today, the VC Springbank Collective hosted the closing bell at the New York Stock Exchange. Why? Well, it's shining a light on companies in their portfolio who are building the infrastructure to help close the gender gap, addressing the long overlooked needs of women, of caregivers, of working families, for example. Let's bring in Courtney Lankuler, founder partner of Springbank Collective, for more on this live from the NICE. And Courtney, the light that you want to shine is a trillion dollar, I believe, opportunity you see hiding in plain sight. But how is it affecting working families right here, right now? Well, I think the opportunity is enormous as a trillion dollars, as you say, and we see it in kind of three big buckets. So first is the future of inclusive work, making better jobs for women and caregivers uh, across the board in the economy, especially in frontline workers. Also, secondly, thinking about the booming care economy. So a lot of times we think about that as health care, but it's also child care, elder care, certain areas of women's health that are under underserved. And then the third area is really thinking about sort of the next wave of financial health and progress for families. Families. And there's an incredible role that tech can play in building in all three of these solution areas, and we feel really excited about the opportunity. Okay, so what's being built? We see when you go to the website the amount of builders that you shine a light on, some of them women, people of color, and I'm interested as to what they're specifically trying to fix. Yeah, so some of the founders that we had ringing the bell with us today, uh, I'll give you an example of a company called Wealthy. So Wealthy is building a care coordination layer, and it is sold through employers as a benefit for their employees. So think about if my mom lives in Florida and she falls and she breaks her hip, God forbid. Uh, suddenly I have a lot of work that I need to do, right? Someone needs to call and fight with her insurance company potentially. Someone needs to find the best physiotherapist in town. Someone needs to figure out how to get her a ride there. That's usually the burden that falls to what we call the alpha daughters or or those working women who are in the prime, sometimes called the sandwich generation or the panini generation. <laughs> and what Wealthy really does is support that caregiver, usually a family caregiver, usually a woman as we know, and take some of that burden off of her hands, the second shift. And what we find with clients of Wealthy and the end users is that women are far more likely to stay in the workforce. They're far less likely to resign, need to go part-time or take a leave of absence. So in this current economic environment, which is such a bizarre one in many ways, where we have an incredibly tight labor market, but we're all worrying about a slowing economy, worrying about companies' desire to be spending on benefits such as this. Where are we in the client security to be paying for companies, startups, and help fuel their growth in this way? I think that's what I love about being able to ring the bell today. We didn't just have our portfolio companies. We had their biggest clients with us, too. We had Merck. We had Oscar. We had AIG. We had Bank of America. These are huge employers, and they don't just employ white-collar knowledge workers in the tech industry, where we know typically benefits have been really generous. A lot of these companies employ a large number of frontline and hourly workers, and they are realizing that in this climate of an extremely tight labor market, when care falls through, people do not show up to work. If you think about the 
railroad strikes that we just went through this past fall, they were about these care issues, I think, fundamentally. They were about paid leave, paid sick leave, and they were about scheduling and absence management. I really think you don't have to peel the layer back on the onion very far to think about those as care issues. Most people take a sick day because their child can't go to school or to daycare, right? And so I think that these issues of care and the needs of care workers and also unpaid caregivers, they're really striking at the heart of the American economy right now. And so I feel really encouraged when I think about the large employers, Nisey listed that we had with us there today, and these young innovative companies, they are committed to working together. I think even in this environment, we are not seeing a pullback on this new and emerging category of caregiving benefits. We think it could be a $10 billion spend by employers in the next 10 years per year. Well, Courtney, you've, you've taken us to the opportunity, right? Caroline and I have so many uh, venture capitalists on the show that will talk about the IRA, for example, right? The Inflation Reduction Act and making sure they have portfolio companies that are positioned to take advantage of that public sector spending and all of the kind of wider benefits. But that's all about energy and about electric vehicles. Very uh, seldom are we discussing issues of healthcare or, or basically what are basic societal needs. That seems to be where you see opportunity. Yeah, I think we see a huge opportunity, and I'll, I'll try an analogy out on you, but I think the same way that we are waking up to the fact that as an economy, we have been addicted to artificially cheap fossil fuels, I think we are also finding through the COVID crisis and beyond that we are also addicted to the artificially cheap labor of women and caregivers. And when we don't value that care, just like when we don't properly value the cost of burning fossil fuels, there are huge economic implications. So BCG just published a report saying if we do not fix the care crisis, both the paid worker crisis as well as the burden on unpaid caregivers, it will cost the U.S. to $290 billion of GDP. That is more than a full point of GDP growth by 2030. So there is a huge opportunity. When we think about the IRA, I love this too, we get very excited about green jobs. I'm excited about them too. But for every solar technician that we need to produce in the next 10 years, we need to produce 20 nurses. And so there is a huge opportunity to think about retraining, how to make nursing jobs better, how to apply things like generative AI to really frankly, pretty mundane and difficult and burnout related tasks like charting and taking notes and things that we know really drag down the hours of paid medical professionals. So I just get really excited about the opportunity that there is in care. I think there's a great intersection with technology and care. And I think we're frankly at the very early innings here. So how do you discern which names in your portfolio are going to be disruptive. Talk to us about where you're investing across the startup curve and, and kind of the time horizon for some of these companies realizing uh, the benefit of your thesis. So we're a very early stage fund, and I think it speaks to that we're very early in the in the S curve uh, for I think the general pool of venture capital and risk capital overall uh, getting turned on to these issues. And so I feel really excited about the rate of company formation in our thesis. When we started a few years ago, most of the founders we met, frankly, were like me. They were women. They were mid-career. They had met a problem, and they wanted to go and build around it. They were not traditional tech founders. They were not necessarily engineers. Many 
many of them have gone on to build amazing businesses and living that problem is really powerful. I think what I feel excited about is that as the venture ecosystem starts to churn and get excited about this, as we start to see things like Andreessen Horowitz having a sort of American dynamism agenda, which very much centers some things around care, we're seeing mainstream capital get interested in this and we're also seeing more traditional profiled founders get interested in this too. We're seeing more engineers, we're seeing more tech talent, we're seeing people who haven't necessarily met the problem, but they have the foresight to see the problem and they're building for it too because they see that it's a huge economic opportunity and a w place to make money. Yeah. It's not just about fixing a problem that they're personally passionate about. What about the LPs out there? What about the source of funding that you turn to? Have they acknowledged this issue? They acknowledge this problem? They acknowledge that they need to put capital to work here? Uh, they do, yeah. We have an incredible group of LPs and I feel really proud to call them our investors and to go to work for them every single day finding great companies. I think that uh, impact capital, traditional capital, frankly corporate capital, a lot of uh, traditional sources of capital for investment are recognizing that there is a big white space here. It mm -hmm. is true, you're pointing out, this is not something which is kind of maybe common on the technology show, but I think that's also an opportunity to make a huge amount of money um, is to be able to get in and to see the opportunities before they become really obvious to everyone else. I tell you what we are talking about an awful lot on the technology show is jobs that are being lost within the technology space as you just sort of enunciated and I'm interested as to whether that suddenly means the companies that you back are awash with talent and people are wanting to go and work and fix real world problems or is that yet to come to bear in some way because in many ways you look at the jobs data you look at the jobless claims that are meant to be out this week and yeah. we don't seem to be seeing those numbers yet. Absolutely. Um, I think the war for talent, for the best talent, is always going to be ferocious, um, and it doesn't really matter where we are in the economic cycle. Uh, but I think that there is a larger group of folks who are certainly amenable to switching right now, to joining, and as you say, pursuing something which maybe sits with them a little bit more strongly from a mission and a purpose standpoint, and also which really touches the real economy. Um, I think it's probably a lot of fun to work on building a gaming startup, but it may not have the same kind of reward building something in care infrastructure or the future of inclusive work or thinking about how do we bring all of these incredible productivity tools we have at work and then do something for families so that we're using something other than a whiteboard and a marker to manage our teams at home. Hmm. Courtney Lime-Kuehler, founding partner of the Springbank Collective. Thank you so much for your time from the NYC. Thanks Appreciate for it. me. Thanks. Thanks, guys. There is a new tool to tackle online sextortion. Take It Down is a free-to-use service that's being funded by the tech giant Meta, and it's to try and tackle the rising rates of what is known as sextortion. This is where a child perhaps is forced or tricked into sharing an intimate photo of themselves with someone else online. They are then threatened, blackmailed even, to stop that photo being shared more widely. Cases are perhaps more than doubling of this sextortion from 2019 to 2021, so says one not-for-profit, and it's actually teen teenage boys that are being most commonly targeted at the moment. So how does it work? This is a web-based tool where you can anonymously share a video or photo that you are worried is going to be distributed more widely online. It is then, using this tool, never actually leaving your phone, but on the web browser, able to give it a sort of digital fingerprint. It's known as a hash. They are then shared, that hash, with other social media platforms that then can take down any photo or video that this is recognized with and ensure that it isn't distributed more widely. 
The National Centre for Exploited and Missing Children is driving this forward with the platforms that Meta owns, like Instagram, like Facebook, and others are also involved at the moment, platforms like OnlyFans, Pornhub, Ubo. But they're hoping that more will come online to this. And of course, this all occurs at a time where big technology companies worldwide are being asked to do more to protect children online focus on this. We know this is a global push. You've seen governments trying to create policy ed around protecting children in the UK and Europe. And I thought this was also a key area to look at today, the story that China in particular is looking in many ways to be focusing on what the ways in which they regulate children's consumption of small, short video, right? In particular, I think of TikTok. I might think of Instagram Reels. It's interesting, once again, China looking to curb that in some way and, and make a policy, basically, around it. Yeah, it mirrors kind of what we've seen out of China in 2022, even going back further than that with the video games industry, right, where there's two parts to it. The Chinese government has been taking action against the big tech giants, but also looking at industries where there's a lot of user data involved and where perhaps societal or cultural values are targeted. That seems very much like what's happening here with regards to the video names. And it is your Billy Billies and your 10 cents that could be impacted. This is Bloomberg Technology. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.